Don't mean to be like a Black Friday line at the new Southwest Plaza, but Christmas is a shove. You've got to make up your mind about what it means. What child is this? At the chronological center of our existence is this person, Jesus Christ. But in his words, he said that he is the dividing line of all destiny. Let me illustrate from a verse you may have heard, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have the undying life of God. That verse means many things, but it does mean this. That if you believe in Jesus, you have life. If you do not believe in Jesus, you are perishing. Jesus is the dividing line. Let me put it in other words. Some of us here in the room this morning, yeah, we know, right, everyone believes a story to define their existence. No matter what you believe, it ultimately reaches a point of faith. So everyone believes in a story. Some in this room believe that the story is that we live in a closed system. All we are is a piece of time with a name. That uh, our bodies, you know, all our intrinsic value is about 10 bucks in mineral compounds. That's what we're worth. I love the way that the atheist evangelist Richard Dawkins put it. He said, uh, there is at bottom no meaning, no purpose, no good, no evil, all there is is blind, pitiless indifference. Our DNA neither cares, neither knows. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Merry Christmas. There's that option, that choice. There's another choice. There's a choice that we live, as C.S. Lewis put it, on a visited planet, an open system where God himself has made appearances. We're asking the question, is God with us? Is he behind all the massive movements of the furniture of history? Is he behind the action that's going on in your life, both the good and the hard? You have to choose you have to make up your mind about what Christmas means. We've started a new preaching series here during Advent. It's called When God Visits, and we will be working each week up to the great visit, V, the great capital V visit, when Jesus, God's Son, visits the planet, becomes one of us, lives with us. That's the great visit, and we will get there. But for these first few weeks, we're going to look at some small V visits in the Old Testament about times when God has visited his people, when he's actually taken on a human form and visited us and had something to say. And uh, Nick and I, these next few weeks, are actually going to be preaching some of our favorite, what theologians call theophanies, when God appears in a human form to make a visit and share some words. And so, because I'm going first, I get to choose my favorite. My favorite small v visit happens in Daniel chapter 5. You may have heard of it. It's called the writing on the wall. 
what I want to do in a minute is actually read Daniel 5. I want to actually sit down, read it, enter the living room of your mind and have you hear this story. You realize, right, that 70% of the Bible is story. Why? Because stories are participative. You actually enter them. You go there. You are witness to the events as they happen. So we'll go there and hear this great story. But let me set the table a little bit that takes us to Daniel chapter 5. In 605 BC, the most powerful man on the face of the earth is named Nebuchadnezzar. And he is ruling an empire in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Uh, it, it, it's glory, uh, one of the four great civilizations that has ever existed. Babylon is at the top, and Nebuchadnezzar is the king. What uh, he does in 605 B.C. is actually uh, enters Jerusalem, sacks the city, and as he was doing to countries all around them, kind of absorbing every country and be making them part of his empire, he would carry off the promising young people from the city of Jerusalem. He carried them off and actually made them part of his own kingly court to work with all the nations that he now owned. You probably have heard of at least four of those young teenagers that he carried away. Uh, Daniel was the name of one, Shadrach, Meshach, and yeah, Abednego. They were in their teens. They're carried off uh, to live in Babylon and become part of the king's government. Daniel was uh, 85 years old when he died. So when he was carried off, he never saw his parents or his homeland again. He struggled, he suffered. When God's moving the furniture of history around, which is what he's doing with Babylon, you see, because Israel had turned in on themselves, were self-focused, had lost their mission, God is getting Israel back on line, back on mission. So he's dealing with Judah, and he's going to carry them into captivity with Babylon. So that's the macro picture, God moving history's furniture, but that's always played out in individual lives. And God is working in Daniel's life just as he works in your life. And uh, it's quite a story for Daniel. When we get to chapter 5, Daniel is 80 years old. And God's going to make one final in-person visit to Daniel. And here's where we pick up the story. Daniel chapter 5. So if you'll allow me, let me into the living room of your mind. Take in this story. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, it's actually his grandfather, but in the ancient literature, it's always father, no matter how generations back. So the goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been given, ta taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, <laughs> the fingers of a human hand appear and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched 
As the hand wrote and his face turned pale, he was so frightened that his knees became weak, uh, his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. (laughs) The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew pale, and his nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge. And understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those the king wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to humble, promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. And he lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until... He acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, 
he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. The word of the Lord. It was October 12th, 539 B.C. Historians know the exact date. Belshazzar was having a party. It's interesting um, why they were partying. Because what we do know of that day is that 50 miles away, there was a battle called the Battle of Sippar. And during that battle, the army of the Medo-Persians actually conquered most of the Babylonian army. So the fact that they were having this party, there's questions why. It must have been a very stressful situation. Scholars believe it was at least three things going on here, three reasons, maybe four, you get to choose. Some say that what was going on here was just a false sense of security. That even though the battle of Sippar, 50 miles away, the Babylonians were losing, they were still in their city, and this was a walled city. And you'll remember that the walls and gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The wall in places was 350 feet high, 87 feet wide. For two and a half years, the Medo-Persians have been trying to get up and over that wall, and they hadn't been able to do it. Maybe what's going on here is a false sense of security. You see, it was so big in that uh, city that they could grow their own food, so they couldn't be starved out, and that wall was so impenetrable that they couldn't be gained from the outside. They sensed they were secure, even though the news that night was bad. Some think that what was happening here was Belshazzar was actually with his nobles having other foreign dignitaries there. This was a state event, and he's using politics to solidify his power. He knows the Medo-Persians are coming, and so what he's trying to build is alliances to uh, shore up the Babylonian Empire. Others think this is a matter of psychology. What's really going on here? is a reaction to a very stressful situation. And often when people are faced with their imminent death, when there's a full awareness that we're dying, people often become rolling in sensual pleasure. Did I mention the concubines to you? That was very unusual royal protocol. This was nothing less than an orgy that was happening within the walls of Babylon for the concubines to be at a state event. 
when people are facing an awareness of death, they become rolling in sensual pleasure or they be revel in silver and gold. Did I mention the golden goblets? That they were toasting the gods and people become very frenetic in their religious practices when there's an awareness of death. It's interesting. There was a, a, an amazing book, a book that I read uh, every couple of years. It, it was by an atheist named Ernest Becker. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1974. The book is called The Denial of Death. And Ernest Becker says that human beings are not able to live in a full grasp of the meaning of their impending death. Especially, as in Becker's case, if what comes after your death is nothing. And when the sun dies, there's nothing. They're not able to live in full awareness of their death. So they turn to covers for their death. Let's listen to Becker. I want to put it in his words here. Let him speak. The irony of man's condition is that the deepest need is to be free of the anxiety of death and annihilation. But it is life itself which awakens it. And so we must shrink from being fully alive. Modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness. Or <laughs> he spends his time shopping. Which is the same thing. As awareness calls for types of heroic dedication that his culture no longer provides for him. Society contrives to help him forget. Forget what? Forget that all of us, life is like a party, but every party has a party crasher who has writing on the wall. Our impending death. And how does culture contrive to help us forget? Becker mentions three things. And here's the thing. They're all mentioned in Daniel chapter 5. I should tell you, I forgot to say this earlier. The reason Daniel chapter 5 is my favorite theophany in the Old Testament is because if you read this story, it explains so much about our culture. It's like C.S. Lewis said. He said, I believe in Christianity for the same reason I believe in the sun, S-U-N. Not only can I see it, but by its light, I see everything else. And in all the worldviews that I've read and studied, Christianity to me seems to shed the most light on what's going, around, going on around us. By its light, I see everything else. Daniel 5 is a moment of that light that explains our culture. Let me talk about it for a minute. I think what you see in this party in Daniel chapter 5 are the three main ways that our culture tries to forget about death. First way, we could call the romantic solution. This, as we said, was an orgy. This was a sensual um, uh, evening of just letting it all hang out in the hopes of forgetting how stressful and bad and, and, and dying our life is. And so they're turning to romance and, and sensual pleasure. Have you noticed in our culture how our culture often turns to what we could call apocalyptic romance to fill the gaping holes in our heart. We see this, for instance, in our songs. Have you ever actually listened to words of romantic songs? Longer than there have been stars up in the heavens, I've been in love with you. Really? <laughs> really? 
that's not possible. Or, you know, let, let's mo move it up a little bit to so someone who I, I love to listen to. Bonnie, my, one of my favorite artists after Bono. She's 25 and she sang Hello. Her name is Adele. You, we, 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 we could have had it all rolling in the deep. Yeah, no, 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 because I'm going to crash the party here, okay? What does that mean? What does that mean? We could have had it all. What's all? Like, when you find that one, that one is going to be the God-like everything who will fix your life and soothe every need in your heart? Do you realize the number one reason relationships fail is because we worship them? And what does rolling in the deep mean? I, okay. I love Adele. Apocalyptic romance. Eclipses death. Gives us life. People often turn to the achievement solution. That if we find the right career that brings us money and power, we are on a path to success. We will stand out from the herd. Here's the problem. If when you die, there's nothing after, and when the sun goes out, there's nothing after, then who's to say your career is any better or more fulfilling than my career, if in the end, it all means nothing. That path leaves people empty as well. There's a third path. So apocalyptic romance, the achievement solution. The third path is the religious solution. The religious solution, according to Becker, goes like this. You can live well enough, good enough, that you can uh, live on in your children's lives by the legacy you leave. Or if you happen to be one of those chosen few who gets famous, then your legacy will be around for generations to come. Is that enough for you? Is that how you want to live on? Is that party enough to eclipse your death? I like the ways Woody Allen once put it. Someone asked him, Woody, how do you feel about your legacy and all your work living on in the movies you've created so that they'll be around for generations? They'll live on. Woody said, yeah, that's okay. That's, that's okay. But I would rather live on in my apartment in Manhattan. Is it enough for you? the religious solution of being a good person that others envy. Every life is a party. And in that party, we're trying to run from our death. We're trying to cover it. We're trying through romance, through career, through religion, through... You and I know many different ways we try to eclipse our death, fill our hearts, give meaning... Every life is a party, but every party has a party crasher. Verses 5 and 6. <laughs> you know, the hand appears. It's Jesus' hand. 
many, many tekel parson. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Daniel turns on Belshazzar in a bold move. I guess when you're 80, you can be bold. <laughs> Let's him have it. You forgot your grandfather. You had a chance here, Belshazzar. You forgot your legacy. You are using my goblets to toast your gods. You are getting a visit. You forgot where you came from. Do you know what was really happening 50 miles away at the Battle of Sippar? Not only did the Medo-Persian army capture much of the Babylonian army, but they also set themselves to work that day, and they actually diverted. You can read about this. They diverted the Euphrates River away from the city of Babylon, enough so that the Medo-Persian army walked under the walls of Babylon on a drained riverbed and captured Babylon and killed Belshazzar, and the party is over. October 12th. 539 B.C. I'd like to suggest there are two important lessons we can learn from this story. First, human wisdom does not have the insight or resources to solve humanity's greatest problem. And what is our greatest problem? Death. We're dying. Belshazzar calls for the best and brightest of Babylon. They can't figure it out. It takes revelation. It takes asking the question, are we created or are we just are? What are we? Why are we here? And who says? I mean, every person has to answer those questions. Every person does answer those questions. The question is, where do you get your evidence? And from what ground are you leaping for the story you believe? I would suggest that since human wisdom cannot figure out the problem of death, try listening to another story. There was this story of a man who visited our planet who claimed to be the son of God. And he said that he was the word of God. That is, if you want to know what God is like, look at him, Jesus. Jesus is the word. John 1.18 says, I put the Father into words so that you can read him and know him. And then in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. If you want to know if you're created, if you want to know who created you and who this God is, Look at Jesus. Read him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God is as Jesus does. You can know God by reading Jesus. Christmas says, with this visit, you've got to make up your mind about who he is. Is Jesus legible to you? Do you understand who he is? You really have two choices. 
from the things Jesus said. He said, for instance, that he is the word of God. He puts God into words. He said that he is the judge. He takes the full measure of every human life. Many, many, tekel, parson. That's true of every person. And Jesus is the one who takes full measure of every human life. So he's the word, he's the judge, and he's the forgiver of sin. Only Jesus is the only human being who ever claimed that he and his death on the cross could forgive your sin and all human sin. Jesus, word, judge, forgiver. Based on the things that he said, you either accept those and believe, hard as that is to do, or you reject him. Can I say it this way? You either receive him and say, command me. Command me. And every part of my life falls into his orbit. Or you go shopping. Human wisdom cannot solve the greatest human problem, and that is death. And I submit to you the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. And the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I'm asking you. I don't know why you came here this morning. I believe it was for this question. Where do you stand with Jesus? Make up your mind. The second lesson we learn, not only is human wisdom insufficient to solve the problem of death, but God's wisdom is the ultimate measure of every life. In verse 23, that's Daniel calling out Belshazzar, the most powerful man in Babylon, and saying, look, you think you're something, toasting the gods with the goblet, you think you're something. The fact is, God's had your life and your ways in his hand the whole time, many many tekel parson. That's true of you and I as well. We like to think we're at the center of God's universe. We, me, we like to think that, you know, God made everything and then he was lonely and so he made us and he needs us and God looks at us and says, oh, you complete me. No. That is not why God made you and I. And he does not need anything. At the center of the revelation of God, at the center of this story, is a God who is sovereign and complete. And so sovereign and complete that he's decided to, to give what was needed so that you and I could have eternal relationship with him. And it's Jesus living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died and accepting his righteousness and that becomes ours and accepting his forgiveness and that becomes ours. We then are accepted by God forever, not because of our good deeds and we think God owes us, but because of his good deeds, which we plead for God to give us. And he does and we're accepted and we have eternal life. When that happens, when we receive Jesus, guess what? 
if the first thing was Jesus being legible and where do you stand with Jesus, the second movement is about you being legible. When people look at your life, your neighbors, your coworkers, what's the writing on the wall? Do they see Jesus written on your wall? Let me push this down to a very practical application. I want you to really really work hard this year at inviting people to Christmas Eve. It's going to be a spectacular night. You know, we have a trained actress. Our own Jenna LaFleur is going to be the angel. We, the script is written by our own Sarah Richardson, who is a professional author and has many books published. And it's directed by our own Melissa Anderson, who comes to us from the stages in Chicago. This is going to be an immaculate Christmas Eve presentation. And here's what you need to know. It's not for you. It is not for you. We hope you come. It is for your neighbors. It is for your family. It is for your coworkers. Would you please, please prayerfully invite people to Christmas Eve this year? Why? I'll close with this. What's interesting in Daniel, big picture, is chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. The Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek, and there's this Aramaic section in Daniel. Why? Aramaic was the language of Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire. What's this mean? This means that God wanted Israel's neighbors, Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, to know that we live on a visited planet. God has a neighboring heart. And if we know him, we too have a neighboring heart. Who are you going to bring to Christmas Eve with your neighboring heart? As we are going to sing one closing song, What Child Is This? and answer the question we began with, gives you a chance to proclaim your faith in Christ. I thought it'd be good to set that song up with a prayer. In response, every life is a party. Every party has a party crasher. The writing's on the wall. What does Christmas mean to you? If you want to, you can pray this prayer with me. I'll pray it nice and slowly. It's written by Ann Voskamp. Bow your heads, pray with your eyes open, kneel however you want to be before God. Let's pray this prayer of response where we tell God, God, I believe in you and I'm giving my life to you. Let's pray. I believe in Jehovah God who created the whirling galaxies, the birds soaring in the sky overhead, the endless crashing waves and all that dances within them. I believe in Father of all who knits together life, made in his very own image, in the secret quiet of our beings. I believe in Jesus Christ, the one with no earthly father, with the dust of this earth between his toes, and with our names etched onto the palm of his hands, right beneath the nail scars, who now sits at the Father's right hand, making endless intercession on our behalf. I believe in the stone rolled away, 
in the body being raised, in the first fruits of the dead, and us all following soon, very soon. I believe in the cross as our only hope, our only claim, our only Savior, our only foundation. I believe that in the pounding surf of life, we have only one thing to cling to, the feet of our Lord Jesus hanging on that tree, his lifeblood flowing down, washing us whiter than snow. It's all, all by his staggering grace, lest any person boast. I believe in the Holy Spirit moving, whispering, indwelling our very being. I believe in living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and producing fruit in the Spirit, in the Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses with groanings that can't be expressed in words. I believe there is more than believing. I believe there is living and sharing what we believe.